Well, I'm going to jump into uh, the message for today. Um, we've been in a, a series on spiritual warfare. Um, I am reminded of my early days, some of my earliest days when I began to love sports. I loved basketball. I loved football and baseball, but I really gravitated towards basketball. That was my favorite sport. And early on, before Larry Bird became known as Larry Legend, and before Larry the, tomato, Larry the Cucumber be, became Larry Boy, I was Larry Legend. I was Larry Boy. I was that guy. I was a basketball superstar. Like, Pastor, why are you bragging on yourself like that? Now, it wasn't on the mean streets of Philadelphia. It wasn't at the Rucker Playground in Harlem. It wasn't in Chicago or L.A., but it was on the rough and tumble streets of Wampsville, New York, where I became a basketball superstar. Wampsville, population 365, about 600 or 700 cows, but I became a superstar. And, and part of the reason I became a superstar was because the competition was very low. In fact... Sometimes we didn't have enough people for the teams, and we would get a couple cows as well. They could never block my shot. But uh, I was a superstar, but there was limited competition. As a young man, even though I didn't live in Philadelphia, my favorite player was Julius Irving, a.k.a. Dr. J., Right. Even before he was in Philadelphia, he was with the New York Nets, and he was doing amazing things. And I patterned my basketball game after his. I like to say he patterned his after mine, but I don't think that's true. But anyway, so I love the way he, he did what he did. He jumped, and he twisted his body, and he did all kinds of acrobatic moves. And I'm like, I want to be like that. And so on my little playground with limited competition, I patterned my game after the Doc's game, and I could get the ball in the hole at will. I was a basketball superstar. And then came a reality check called high school. And in high school, I became a basketball player, not a superstar anymore. And the reason was because I patterned my game after someone who had amazing athletic talent that I didn't have. And, num and number two, because of that, I never worked on the fundamentals, on the fundamentals of what it means to be a sound basketball player. We'll talk about a couple of those fundamentals today, but I did not work on the fundamentals, and so I hit a wall with my athletic ability and skill. Now, why am I talking about this? I'm talking about this because of this. In our uh, talking about winning in spiritual warfare, today we're going to begin to look at five fundamental truths. I think we're just going to get to two of them today. Fundamental truths about spiritual warfare. And here's the problem, is many of us are just caught up in the things that are fantastic and powerful and wow, look at God, and we don't work on the fundamentals. Amen? If all your spiritual life and spiritual warfare is about is some amazing move of God, some gift and some power, but you're not working on or understanding the fundamental truths of what it means to walk in power and victory in the Lord, you're going to find yourself hitting your own wall and you're not going to be able to excel beyond that. 
So that's what we're looking at today. Let's stand together. And I want to start by reading a wonderful passage of Scripture. I love this from Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 13. 13 through 15 is what we'll be reading today. So I want y'all to read it like you believe it. Amen? Did somebody say amen like you believe it? Amen. Amen. So let's read it like you believe it. Uh, Colossians 2, starting at verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and circumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Father God, we thank you for what you have done for your people, triumphing over anything and everything that the enemy would ever be able to do through your cross and by your resurrection power. Lord God, we thank you for that truth today, and we pray that you'll use these few minutes to build up your people, to teach us and grow us, that we might be more like you. We thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, and amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. I want to talk, I want to begin talking about what it means to focus on fundamentals. And so I'm going to look at a basketball skill, a basic basketball skill, and then spiritual warfare fundamental beliefs. So the first skill I want to look at on the basketball court is the skill of dribbling the basketball. If you cannot dribble the basketball, your team is in trouble and you're in trouble. Somebody knows basketball ought to say amen right now. So if you, and it's not just doing fancy dribbles. I like Dr. J used to go between his legs and I just worked on that all the time. How can I dribble between my legs? How can I dribble behind my back? You know, do all those cool things. But in basketball, the most fundamental thing you need to learn in dribbling is dribbling with both hands. Amen? No matter how good you are, if they know you only and always go to your right because you dribble with your right hand, they're going to be able to stop you. But if you learn to be semi-ambidextrous and you can go right and left and dribble with great skill, you can move up the court, your team can get good opportunities to shoot the basketball. Dribbling is foundational. But dribbling is foundational as a skill, but here's the first fundamental belief that is absolutely critical to every believer. That is this. Christians do not fight for victory, but from victory. Amen? I know that I've said this before uh, at New Life Church, but I really want to emphasize this reality. Christians don't fight for victory, but we fight from victory. Let's look again at the Colossians passage that we just read together. Colossians 2, starting at verse 13. Uh, Paul is writing this, and I just want you to look at many of the verbs that he uses. In verse 13, he says, God made you alive in Christ. Amen? That's a past tense, right? If you are a believer, you can say, you know what? God did something to me. 
He did it, and he had made me alive in Christ. And then he goes on to say, he forgave us all our sins. Again, past tense. Verse 14, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. It's all done. He's canceled it. That is over. He goes on to say later in that verse, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. It's gone. Verse 15, he says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public, a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What am I saying? Jesus Christ has already done for you what you could never in a million lifetimes do for yourself. And we've got to live our lives as believers in Christ out of the knowledge that God has already done it for us. As Jesus was on the cross, we, we sometimes on Good Friday can have a service where we talk about the seven last words of Christ, different sayings from the cross. And one of them in John chapter 19 and verse 30, it's three words in English. Jesus says, it is finished. It is finished. It's one word in Greek. I love it. Tetelestai. Jesus said, Tetelestai, it is finished. What does it mean when it is finished? It means it's finished. It means it's done. It means there's no more left to do. Some of you are students here, and, and many of you were students at one point in time. When you have to write that last paper of the semester, when you hit the period at the end of the last sentence, and now when you hit the send button, you can say, Tetelestai, it is finished. I'm done. Now, it might be an A paper, hallelujah. It might be a C paper. It might be worse than that. But one thing I can tell you is it is finished. Amen. There's nothing left to do on that assignment because everything that needed to be done has been done. There's nothing left to do. Brother or sister, believer in Christ, know this. Before you pick up the first weapon, Jesus has already won the war. Jesus has won the war. Now, we've been talking about and we'll talk more about the fact that doesn't mean he hasn't told you to pick up a weapon. Amen? Put on the full armor of God. But we do that knowing that he has done what only a God could do. We know that he has done what only he could do. Listen, what would you do? How would your life be different when you face challenges in life knowing that victory is not a hopeful reality, but it is an absolutely 100% assured reality? How different would that make your life? I, I, I look at... Uh, Victory, and you can go to the next slide, the effects of victorious knowledge. The question is, what difference would it make if you knew for a certainty, you knew from God's word that victory is absolutely assured? I want to use an example of that in David. And we remember David versus Goliath. If you remember that, that story in David versus Goliath, the whole army of Israel is encamped against the army of the Philistines, and, and the Philistines have a champion, Goliath, who is 
uh, a humongous man. He is very large. Saul is the king of Israel. He's a head taller than the Israelites, so he's a big dude, but he is dwarfed by this giant Goliath. And, and the challenge is you send your best, the Philistines say, against our best, Goliath, and then whoever wins that fight gets the spoils of the war. And the Israelite camp is scared to death. No one is able to go out against Goliath. And then young David hears about it. And we know the, the, the fight that David goes into. But here's the reality. David has a different mindset than anyone else in the Israelite camp because he says, Wait a second, God promised this stuff to us. This is ours already. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? And so the first thing I want you to see is it emboldens you to get into the fight instead of avoiding it. Everyone else is scared to death of getting in the fight, but because David comes from a, a centered reality that God is in this, God is for us, God is with us. I'm not looking at how big that giant is. I'm looking behind that giant at how big my God is. You jump right in the fight. Secondly, not only that, it gives you confidence, even when things look like they're not going well. Here is giant Goliath filled with armor, body armor from his head to his toes. He's got a shield and he's got a sword that is bigger than any sword in Israel. And he's got all of these things. David tries on the armor of Saul, who is much bigger than him. And David says, that's just not going to work. That armor doesn't fit me. I don't know that, but I know this. I killed a lion and I killed a bear when I was a shepherd boy and they tried to attack uh, my, my flock. And so this Philistine, this uncircumcised Philistine, he said, will be like one of those to me. And so David, in no armor, with no sword, with no shield, but with a little slingshot and five smooth stones, advances against the enemy. When it looks like, when it looks like there's no hope, when it looks like it, 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 everything is bad and against me, when you know that you know that you know that God is with you and that God has promised something, you can move forward and advance, even when it looks bad. And the last thing, the effects of this victorious knowledge is this. It helps you overcome fear with faith. 1 Timothy 1, 7 says that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, a spirit of love, and a sound mind. God says, I have not given you as a believer in Christ to be a person that cowers in unbelief and looks at challenges and says, it can't be done. But I look at God and I say, I know God's in this thing. Amen. That doesn't make mean that we make up stuff that God hasn't promised. Amen. Some people are believing God for a yacht. Maybe somebody here is believing God for a 200-foot yacht. Well, you go ahead and believe. But if God hasn't said it, all that believing in the world is not going to do it. But when you believe in what has been revealed already in the Word of God, when you hold on to the fact that God says that He's not finished with you yet and that what He has begun in you, He will complete, He will finish, He will perfect until 
the day of Jesus Christ, when you hold on to that fact, you've got something that's sure. That's what God is calling us to. It helps you overcome fear with faith. What is your Goliath? Right now, in your life, what is your Goliath? We can all have things, situations, sin issues, relational issues, economic issues, all kinds of issues, addiction issues in our life that are so much bigger, more powerful, overwhelming to us that we know that we don't have a shot against them. Here's what I want to say to you. Whatever that Goliath is in your life, however big and ominous and powerful it looks, you need to look at it like David looked at that giant and says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? You are coming up, not against the little shepherd boy, but you're coming up against the living God who created all things and who has promised to watch over me as his child. See, we come against our Goliaths in that way. How do we do that? How we do that is we must know our identity is hidden with God in Christ. That's a verse from Colossians that... Our identity is hidden with God in Christ. We've got to know that we know that we know that we're in Christ. Look at, uh, I have a few verses I'm going to put up here from Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 verse 3 simply says, God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Brothers and sisters, the blessings that you have, the power that you have, The promises that you have are not because of your education. They're not because of your financial status or your family legacy and history. They're not because of how talented you are. They are all because you are in Christ. It's in Christ that we have power. Look at verse 7. He says, in him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood. In verse 11 says, in him, We were also chosen, that is, in Christ. And in verse 13, he says, When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Believers in Jesus, if you have given your heart and life to him, the Bible says that in a mysterious way, you are in Christ. Here's the question we have to ask ourselves. Is that thing that we are so afraid of? Is that person that we're so afraid of? Is that situation that we cower against bigger than our God? Because if you're in Christ, you can overcome by faith in him. Amen? Amen. Focusing on fundamentals. I want to look at a second fundamental then today. Just for a few minutes. We talked about dribbling as a fundamental, and Christians do not fight for victory, but from from victory. But I'm also going to talk about a second fundamental, which is shooting the basketball. Amen? Basketball is an interesting sport. It's not like gymnastics. Gymnastics, you get scored on various things, right? The judges look and say, oh, wasn't that a nice flip? I just like the way she or he 
did that. And, and they score you. Uh, there, there's a criteria that they have, but there's something very subjective as well about how they score you in certain sports like gymnastics. In, in basketball, it's not that way. If the ball goes through the hoop, you, you get points. If it doesn't, you can have the prettiest looking layup, three-point shot, four-point shot, whatever you want to do. You can do whatever you want to do, but if the ball does not go through the basket, you don't score. And at the end of the day, they look at who scored the most points. You've got to learn how to shoot the basketball. That was my problem. I learned how to shoot a basketball, really, when I was in college. In high school, I just went off of athletic ability and other things. I did not have fundamentals. I did not know how to properly balance my body, how to, how to get my arm aligned and just flip that thing so it would have a perfect rotation and just go like a feather through that hoop. I've got that skill now. Amen? <laughs> Didn't have it then. Didn't have it then. But, but when, when we don't have that skill, Let's look at the, the fundamental truth here for spiritual warfare. Here's the truth. Demons are not your primary, not your primary reason for your sin. <laughs> Demons aren't, it's not the devil made me do it. <laughs> Some of y'all remember, I, I'm giving away my age now. In the 1970s, Flip Wilson was a comedian, and he had a, a, a lady before there was Medea, before there was Shanene with Martin, there was Geraldine with Flip Wilson. And whenever Geraldine got in trouble and someone called her on it, Geraldine would say, the devil made me do it. And sometimes Christians live their lives like that. We always have someone else somewhere else to blame for our failure. But, but that won't get us anywhere. That would be, see, see this is so fundamental for us as believers in Jesus Christ, it would be like we're on a basketball court and trying to stand in on our heads and shoot the ball with our left foot. How often is that going to go in? Probably never for most of us in this room. And when we are not taking responsibility, when we're saying that the demons or the devil or someone else has made me do this thing, we are missing a basic fundamental of the Christian life and of spiritual warfare. We need to know that God is able, but we have to take responsibility for that. We're going to look at a scripture in just a second here from Romans 1, chapter, Romans chapter 1, 21 through 25. But here's, here's the main point. Human sin seeks to get from the creation, what can only be found in God. Human sin seeks to get from the creation what can only be found in God. Look with me at Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 21. For although they knew God, look at this, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. What does that mean? People know that there is a God. It's built into you. You're hardwired as a person, as one who is made in the image and likeness of God, to know that there is a God. But here's a decision of the human will. They didn't glorify him. They did not give him thanks. 
scripture says, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they become fool, became fools. Look at verse 23. And exchanged, here's the important word, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings, birds, animals, and reptiles. What's he saying? We made an exchange here. And this is classically when you look at the Old Testament idolatry. It's like making other things and saying that this thing that I have made is now my God. And we say, boy, that, that's foolish. Why would people ever do anything like that? But I would challenge us to say that in our time, we are every bit as much idolaters as people were before Christ came in the Old Testament. Amen? We can make idols out of so many things. Here's what we too often do. God has made us in his image and in his likeness. And what we do is we return the favor. We now make God in our image and in our likeness and say, God, here's how I like to think of you. Here is how I like to understand you. And so we make God in our own image and likeness. Look at verse 24. Therefore, when we make this exchange, when we make other things to be in the place of God, God gave them over. Say that with me. God gave them over. God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, degrading their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God. There's that word again, exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. Listen, this is where we lose the power of God in our lives. When we don't understand that God is saying, this is a decision that you are making. This is something that you have given yourself to. And instead of taking that responsibility, we point a finger somewhere else. It just won't work that way, y'all. A great early bishop of the church named Augustine said it this way. He was a bishop in North Africa. He said, where I found truth, there found I my God, who is the truth itself. Listen, when we understand uh, what is going on as we are tempted to sin and as we fall in sin, and when we agree with God on that, there is power to overcome. I don't know about anyone else here, but I can get tempted to different things. I know most of you, y'all so holy, nothing tempts you anymore. But I'll tell you something that will never tempt me. It just won't. I am strong in the Lord and the power of his might. So you can put all the liver and beets on a plate in front of me that you want. You can put whatever you want on that liver. You could put bacon on it. I wouldn't care. I know that's liver under there. I am not interested. Liver and beets, you can put that in front of me all day long, and I'm just not tempted. Why? Not because I'm strong, because I don't like liver and beets, y'all. In matter of fact, I have two words for that, nas and tea. It's just nasty to me. Some of y'all like liver and beets, but, but forgive me. Forgive me. So there are things that can go before us that don't tempt us at all, but other things do tempt us. And we see that right in, in this chapter. It, it, uh, it, it talks about sexual temptation. And here's, here's the problem that I often see in the church is 
one person is tempted one way, another person is tempted another way, and we think we're superior because I'm not tempted the way that person is tempted. But I'm still tempted. So whether that is tempted to same-sex relationships or opposite-sex relationships, if there's any temptation that is outside of God's prescribed limits for sexual fulfillment, we have to say no to that and yes to God and understand that that comes from our flesh. The devil didn't make me do it. He doesn't make me do it. Now, the devil will come alongside and demonic forces will come alongside and, and kind of woo you into that thing, but you have to take responsibility for your own temptation. That comes from my flesh. We all need to say no to our flesh. No one gets off. Here's rule number one of the flesh. The flesh craves what it cannot have. Amen? The flesh wants what it cannot have. I could be as a child in a house and there's cookies, a cookie jar right on the counter, and I'm not thinking about that cookie jar. But the second I hear, now don't touch that cookie jar. Where is my focus now? I just want that cookie jar. Sometimes I see signs that tell me what not to do, and something inside of me just says, oh, yeah, I can do that. (laughs) No turn on red. Listen, no turn on red means no turn on red. Amen? I'm learning in the spirit that that means no turning on the red light. I'm getting better, right, wife? I'm getting better. But there's nobody here. No, but no turn on red. No turn on red. Rule number one, the flesh craves what it can't have. That is the nature of sin. We are fallen creatures, fallen in sin, redeemed by God. We have the power of God within us by his Holy Spirit. But at the same time, our flesh is still vying for position. And so we've got to understand when that comes up in your life, it craves what you know, God said, that's off limits. You know that you need to say no to that by the power of God. Now, I'm going to finish up with this. Four keys, then, to fighting your flesh. How in the world can we actually do this thing? Number one, and I've been talking about this all day here, stop blame shifting. We need to be a people who aren't blame shifting. Don't blame a demon. Don't blame a daddy. Don't blame some new development for what is actually your decision. Amen? That's four Ds right there, y'all. Don't blame a, a demon. Don't blame your family legacy and history. Don't blame a new development that is going on for a decision that you are making. Stop blame shifting. Number two, stop blame shifting, but start believing. Believe. How are you going to believe what God says if you don't know what God says? Brothers and sisters, we need to be in this word. I love what it says in Ezekiel that he, he saw the scroll and he ate the scroll. And it says, and it was like honey in my mouth. When we become a people of the book, when we become a people who are immersing ourselves in the study of Scripture, in the reading of Scripture, in the memorizing of this 
beautiful word, then we can start believing what it says and have power to fight against our flesh. Listen, brothers and sisters, God is enough. As many enemies as there may seem to be, we need to know that if there's 10,000 enemies, if there's one true and living God, he trumps all of that. He is greater than all of it. God is enough. Number three, and this is so critical for us, we need to be people who stay in community. What do I mean by that? In Christian community, that means we need to endeavor in every way to press into relationships with other people who are mature and maturing in Christ, growing in Christ, that we're on the same trajectory together. We're pressing into those life on life, not just on a Sunday morning hearing a sermon or or listening to a podcast during the week, but real flesh and blood relationships with other believers. We are pressing into those things. This is Christian community. And this is why we are making a big deal, a big deal out of community groups as we're moving into this new year, this new school year. We're making a big deal out of it because of this. I am absolutely convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt that we will not grow as believers beyond our ability to press into community with other believers. Amen? We can think we know so much, we've got so much together, but until we're in Christian community, being challenged, challenging others, helping one another, because this church is about the body of Christ. It's not just about individually what it is that you can or can't do. Church is about the body of Christ. Listen, I don't know what each one of us in this room is in the body of Christ. Somebody might be a toenail. Now you think, oh, what's a toenail? I don't need a toenail. Take your toenail off and tell me if you want a toenail, right? So you might be a toenail. You might be a vertebrae. You got 33 of them, I think, 33. But we got doctors in here. I'm probably wrong. But you got a whole bunch of vertebrae. Just take one out. See how that works for you, right? Uh, You might be a pancreas. You know what a pancreas does? Okay, you don't. Neither do I. So... I don't know what a pancreas does, but it needs to be in there for some reason, right? So we have all these pieces and parts of the body, but any one of them isolated to itself cannot do what it was designed by God to do. And so it is in the body of Christ. We need to have each and every member of the body functioning, not just in your gifting, but functioning together with other believers in your gifting. Amen? I am pleading with you, brothers and sisters in Christ, that you get involved in a community group and give yourself to it. Listen, this is countercultural, making a real commitment to other people. And praise God for all those who have been here over the years and have continued on. And some of the what's what's been going on in small groups here for years, it's beautiful people supporting one another, becoming the body of Christ for one another. And we want to see that not just with a few folks at New Life, but we want to see that with everybody at New Life. Amen? Stay in community. And lastly, stick with it. Tell somebody next to you, you got to stick with it. you got to stick with it. I say it this way sometimes. Sin is a booger. Amen? 
Sin is a booger, man. It's hard. Your flesh, regardless of how long you've been a Christian, is not better than your flesh was when you became a Christian. Flesh doesn't get better. And so it's always, your flesh will always be attracted to the thing that God says you can't have. And so we need to continue to fight this thing. We need to stick at it. Listen, if you have promised yourself, if you cried out to God 10,000 times, I am pleading with you today, cry out 10,001. Keep at it. Believe God. He is not finished with me yet. He is able to do everything he's promised exceedingly abundantly beyond all I can ask or think. Why? Because I'm in him. I'm in Christ. That's my hope. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to wrap it up now for today. These fundamentals, we've got a few more I'll talk about in a couple of weeks. But the fundamentals of your faith, they are the things that it may not look fancy. It may not look great. It may not look grandiose. But if you don't have these fundamental skills, you're going to hit a wall and not be able to progress in Christ beyond that wall. And so I'm asking each of us, to take these things seriously. God wants to make you not just a superstar on the courts of Wampsville. Amen. But God wants you to be a, a superstar for him. And what do we do as superstars in Christ? God in Christ is getting all the glory through our lives. But I, my prayer for each one of you is that there will be glory to be gotten through your lives. As you overcome, as you see his greatness, as you share a witness that changes people around you by his grace, that we see God glorified in this place. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you so much today for this church, for my brothers and sisters here at New Life Church. And Lord God, what you are doing in this place. And Lord, we are excited beyond words about what you will do. How do we know what you'll do? Lord, because you've just said it in your word, that you will continue to perform and work in the life of every believer until Christ is formed in us and your name is glorified. Lord God, we know that you want to reach many, many people around this community, not just through New Life, but through other churches. And Lord God, we want to align with them and align with you and see your name made much of in this place. So God, I pray in the name of Jesus that you will greatly glorify your name. Be with your people and help us walk, oh God, in the confidence that you have completed this good work. It is finished. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.